During the days of the Puritans and colonists, it was customary to preach several election day sermons just before the people would choose their new representative. This is the second sermon in a three-part series examining the Puritans' influence in the New World as heirs of the Reformation. A Royal Covenant reading coming from Isaiah, Isaiah in chapter 11, the first nine verses, the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 11, as Isaiah, by inspiration of God, speaks of the branch of Jesse as the ruler of his people. By inspiration of God, Isaiah writes, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play in the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt, nor destroy, in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Paul writing to the church at Philippi, Philippians in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 through verse 11. With the same spirit, the apostle writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant who was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now George Bancroft, the historian, once stated that while we consider Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison the founders of America, and the Puritans as America's grandfathers, it was actually Calvin who must be given credit as America's great-grandfather. Now, while that is true, it was actually the reformer Theodore Beza that was actually most instrumental in influencing the Puritans to engage the culture. His whole idea was, let's use Calvin's work to engage the culture in order to build a societal structure that glorified God. 
So while Calvin might have set the stage for cultural reconstruction, it was actually Theodore Beza who built that societal apparatus that gave way to the actual recalibrating of society and its several institutions. Now in God's wisdom and providential timing, the Reformation exploded upon the scene at the same time that the New World was looked at across the Atlantic and it was being developed. It was the age of exploration. God had providentially orchestrated both the timing of the Reformation and the age of exploration, or as it is sometimes called, the age of discovery, officially beginning in the early 15th century and lasting through the 17th century. God was providentially orchestrating these two events to happen simultaneously so that the Reformation and the age of discovery would now advance the gospel into the world. And this is a period of time characterized as a time when Europeans began exploring the world by sea in search of new trading routes. Of course, some would search wealth and knowledge. But it was a time when everyone was excited about the world around them. Its impact would permanently alter the world and transform not only geographically into the modern science that it is today, but it would spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the parts of the world that had not yet been enlightened by it. Parts of the world that were not even explored as of yet. So by 1492, Columbus had already discovered the West Indies, and by 1501, Amerigo Vespucci discovered the American continent while sailing near the tip of South America. And these discoveries were providentially orchestrated by God, opening the door for the spread of more than just trade routes, more than just getting wealth and knowledge, but it opened the door to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, much of the motivation behind the quest for these new lands stemmed not only from secular and monetary gain, but also, and moreover, so as to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire global order. And God is orchestrating this perfectly so that his word can go throughout the four corners of the globe. Now coupled with the excitement of new trade routes, the excitement of declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, which fueled the passion and desire and the courage of these explorers, even more, I believe, than monetary gains was, of course, Christopher Columbus. This evangelical desire was a direct consequence of the gospel's impact upon these men. Evangelism had received a new head of steam by this time by means of sea travel and the excitement of discovering many new lands was something that, that the people of God wanted to see happening. So by 1453, the church, the Greek church, the church at Constantinople, once a fortress of Christianity with its Greek scholars, by that time, by 1453, that church had been overrun by the Muslims so that the Greek scholars had to move west, not to be destroyed by the Muslims, into the Latin quarter of the Roman Empire. The collapse of the Greek church made these men find their way into the Latin quarter so that they would bring not only their skill in Greek, but they brought with them the original manuscripts of the New Testament. Now by this time also, by 1453, no longer could the trade route be from Europe to China, 
by land because the Muslims had closed off those trade routes. So no longer could trade with India be successfully accomplished via land travel. Other routes had to be destroyed. And that was also part of God's plan. Not only to bring the Greek scholars over to the West, but it was also God's plan to shut the trade routes going east to China and India. He had shut off those trade routes so that people would look to the oceans to go to the American continents. So other routes had to be explored, which brought Columbus on the scene. Because Columbus at that time believed that sailing west would bring a new route to India by passing the Islamic threat. Now, of course, as we know, or as we should know, the issue was not that the world was flat. He knew that the world wasn't flat. He knew it was round, and so did many of the scholars at the University of Salamanca, and they argued over not that the world was round, but rather how round was it? What was the circumference of the world? Was it large? Was it small? Columbus thought it was small. But by his own admission, his motivation was the spreading of the gospel more than anything else. Notice what he writes in his journal. He says this, And your highnesses, as Catholic Christians and princes, devoted to the holy Christian faith and the propagation thereof, and enemies of the sect of Mohammed and of all idolatries and heresies resolved to send me, Christopher Columbus, to the said regions of India to see the said princes and peoples and lands and the disposition of them and of all and the manner which may be undertaken for their conversion to our holy faith. Notice his motive. I prayed to the most merciful Lord about my heart's great desire and he gave me the spirit and the intelligence for the task. It was the Lord who put it into my mind. I could feel his hand upon me to sail to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit, because he comforted me with rays of marvelous illumination from the Holy Scriptures, encouraging me continually to press forward, and without ceasing for a moment, they now encouraged me to make haste. Our Lord Jesus desired to perform a very obvious miracle in the voyage to the Indies to comfort me and the whole people of God. I spent seven years in the royal court and in the end they concluded that it was all foolishness so they gave it up. But since things generally came to pass that were predicted by our Savior Jesus Christ we should also believe that this particular prophecy will come to pass. In support of this, I offer the gospel text of Matthew 24, verse 25, in which Jesus said that all things would pass away, but not his marvelous word. He also affirmed that it was necessary that all things be fulfilled, which prophesied by himself and by his prophets. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, said that before the end of the world, all things must come to pass that had been written by the prophets. Isaiah goes into great detail in describing future events and in calling all people to our holy Catholic faith. The execution of the journey to the Indies, I did not make use of intelligence, mathematics, or maps. It is simply the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. Of course, Columbus would not bring the Reformed doctrine to the New World, since Luther had not yet begun to question the Roman Church, and the only religious apparatus of Christianity was the Roman Church, nor could Columbus bring the maturity of the Reformation, as it was fleshed out by Calvin and the company of pastors and Viray and and Beza, but his voyage and that of others did open a door 
an evangelistic door by which later on, by the late 1500s and 1600s, the Puritans, those great men of faith, the heirs of Geneva's model and Calvin's doctrine would walk right through. The majority of these early settlers were undeniably Puritans. And what is almost never discussed when studying Columbus and his writings is his understanding of eschatology. In addition to his evangelical position, he seemed also to hold to what we would call today a post-millennial position, believing that it was God's will that one day all nations and peoples would be converted to Christianity, that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, whether he consciously knew it or expressed it in precise verbiage, he was intimating by his spreading of the gospel that the knowledge of the Lord would in fact cover the earth at one day in the future. And his exploration would begin that task. Now it's important also for us to understand that this unspoken post-millennial doctrine, while it may not have been asserted in a doctrinal statement or verbalized, debated and discussed, it was nevertheless, I believe, what energized Columbus to go forth. He was not actually discussing post-millennialism as much as he was doing it. He was doing it. He was advancing the kingdom of God in the same way with the reformers and to a very large extent the Puritans. Now the Reverend John Winthrop recorded the reason. Notice the reason why the Puritans came here. This was the organic reasoning behind their mindset of coming to the new world. Notice what he says. It will be a service to the church of great consequence to carry the gospel into those parts of the world to help on the coming of the fulfillment of the Gentiles and to raise a bulwark against the kingdom of Antichrist which the Jesuits labored to reap up in those parts. Notice, he wanted to come here in order to complete the fulfillment of Jesus Christ bringing the Gentiles into the Christian faith. Now the majority of the Puritans had a very strong millennial expectation, which we would identify as what we call now post-millennialism, or post-millennial in nature. And it was this eschatological orientation where they would one day recognize that God would bring about a glorious gospel reconstruction of the entire world, and that's what fueled them. It fueled their missions. It fueled the explorations. It re- was fueling the reformers. And the Puritans brought that forth in the 17th and 18th centuries. Now for the Puritans of the 17th century, the vision of the triumph of the saints and martyrs toward the end of the world had persistently been preached by such men as John Cotton, Cotton and Smather and others. And as a result of their positive impact upon the Reformation and then the the productivity of the Puritans in the New World, many began to think that the post-millennial era had begun. These men said, we are going to win in time and in history. We're not waiting for Jesus to come again. We're going to win in time and in history. Thomas Brightman argued, however, that while the millennial era had begun, it was not yet accomplished in its totality. We were moving, he believed we were moving toward that culmination, but we still had work to do. He anticipated a glorious time for the Christian church where the church would finally be purged from all popery and paganism and then organized according to the principles of Puritanism within the realm of time and history. And that's the point they were making. 
they were not saying that, well, we're going to lose in time and history and then Jesus will come and get us out of it. They were saying that we will advance. The kingdom will be militant and triumphant in time and in history. And for all intents and purposes, his eschatological view was post-millennial. Now, according to this and adopting this view, John Cotton began preaching a series of sermons in Boston in 1639, a Puritan in his own right, that reproduced the core elements of Thomas Brightman's scheme. Notice what he said. This is when our nation began, 1639. He preached that, quote, great things were being accomplished as the church now entered a new reformation of Puritanism both inwardly, notice inwardly, and outwardly, which would change the world. I have often said that if your vision is not changing the world for Christ and His kingdom, then your vision is too small. So through the preaching of Cotton and Increase Mather and others, the idea of post-millennialism re-emerged as an important theme throughout Puritan New England. This eschatological faith, this faith of victory because Christ had come to be victorious through his church was pervasive during the 17th century which spilled over into the era of the colonies with the Mathers. Notice what E.L. Tovison observes in his work Redeemer Nation. Quote, In the 17th century, a revolution in thinking about eschatology had already begun. The idea that God predicted the defeat of evil before the end of the world and his redeeming promise began to be taken seriously throughout English-speaking Protestantism. God, it began to be thought, is redeeming both individual souls and society in a parallel course, and in the next century, a new nation in a recently discovered part of the world seems suddenly to be illuminated by a ray of heavenly light to be at the western end of the rainbow that arched over the civilized world." End quote. Notice what they were thinking, that we will win. The Puritan Thomas Shepherd, observing, notice his work, the clear sunshine of the gospel breaking forth upon the Indians in New England. He observed this, quote, The utmost ends of the earth are designed and promised to be in time, notice the key phrase, to be in time the possessions of Christ. This little we see something in hand to earnest to us those things which are in hope, something in possession, to assure us of the rest in his promise when the ends of the earth shall see his glory and the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him. Notice what they were thinking. They were saying we are going to win. We're not going to be defeated because Christ said we are not going to be defeated. Now, whether their identification, understanding, or description of postmillennialism lines up with our version today, it is at least evident that they believe that through the Reformed faith, via the vehicle and application of God's word, the world would finally be transformed into a global Christian community before the end of time. 
Not after time is finished, but before the end of time. These men believed that Puritanism was the beginning of that hope. Their entire life lined up with George Gillespie's famous quote, Reformation ends not in contemplation, but in action. These men were on the march. They were on the move. They wanted to change the world. And Puritanism was all about action. And this is the reason why there was such an influx of Reformed Puritans settling in the new world. They wanted to be part of the work. Just think about it. They saw a need. They saw a work. And they said, let me at it. I want to do something. What can I do for Christ? We need to see that again today. We need young people, old people, middle-aged people say, listen, where, where can I serve? Where can I be of service to advance the kingdom? They wanted to be part of the work. They wanted to be involved in building a biblical world where Christ would sit as head and king and every knee would then bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ was Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Puritan hope, as it was called, was to build a biblical model of society so that the entire world would come to know, submit to, and mature in faith and obedience to the lordship and kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since England seemed to be more thoroughly saturated by the Reformation, it was only natural that many of the Puritans began there and they migrated to the New World. Like their forefathers, the Reformers, the Puritans based all truth for faith and life on the Holy Scriptures. They weren't looking at the prophecies and saying, oh, it's all going to come down in a crashing ball of fire and then Jesus will come and get us out of it. They were looking for victory. They saw the giant and they came to slay the giant. Their foundation lay in the following doctrines. First, everything that the Puritans thought and practiced was according to the word of God. Their central theme was the word of God. And that central theme was what undergirded every aspect of their life and faith and it was sola scriptura. And it was the Reformation doctrine which drove the Puritans to seek Reformation in every area of life. Secondly, the second foundational doctrine which drove the Puritans was the covenant of God. And it was that doctrine that had a molding influence on everything that the Puritans did since it brought them into an accountability relationship with God and His law. They were covenantly obligated to advance the kingdom of God. If they were not advancing the kingdom of God, they were not doing their duty. They were not being the Christian that God had called them to be. Author T.H. Breen explains, he says, in his work, the character of the godly ruler comments on the Puritan idea of God's covenant. He says this, These Puritan settlers conceived of themselves as bound by the terms of a divine covenant. Bound by the terms of a divine covenant. If they pleased the Lord by living according to scriptural law, they knew they could expect to see, as they testified, more of God's wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. So the more they obeyed, the more they advanced the kingdom, the more that God would pour His blessings upon them. He ends with this, he says, The colonists were on a special mission. Each one was personally responsible for its success. You think about it. Tell your children that they are personally responsible and will be held personally accountable for the advancement of the kingdom of God. It places a burden, a glorious burden, upon each and every one of us that we are personally responsible to do God's will. The Puritan Reverend John Winthrop explains how critical it was to obey God's covenant commandments. He says this, 
Thus stands the cause between God and us. We are entered into covenant with Him for this work. We have taken out a commission. The Lord has given us leave to draw our own articles. We have professed to enterprise these actions upon these and these ends and will expect a strict performance of the articles contained in it. But if we shall neglect the observance of these articles, which are the ends we have propounded and dissembling with our God and shall fail to embrace this present world and prosecute our carnal intentions, seeking great things for ourselves and our prosperity, the Lord will surely break out in wrath against us and the revenge of such a perjured people and make us know the price of the breach of such a covenant. In other words, if you become worldly, God's going to curse you. The Puritans understood what covenant accountability meant and they defined it by the word casuistry. The Puritans define casuistry as the art of moral theology applied to biblical integrity to various cases that a person confronted with his conscience or life. According to Thomas Merrill, in his work on the Puritan Williams Perkins, he says it was a method of blazing trails through the ethical wilderness that too often separates theory from practice, code from conduct, and religion from morality. Simply put, casuistry is practical theology. It's the application of something. It's practical theology used to train Christians to live uprightly, humbly, and joyously in the presence of God throughout their lives, knowing, knowing, and here's the key, knowing that there are certain consequences for actions, good and evil. The first place where they applied this was within the confines of church membership. Dr. Joel Beakey explains it this way. He says, The Puritans concurred with Calvin that communicant members of the church should be held accountable to biblical standards of and for their conduct. Held account- You see this idea of accountability? See, no one's to blame now. My mother made me do it. My father, this one, that one. Adam did it. God did it. Eve told me. Accountability. We are accountable. If we bring upon our lips the word Christian and call ourselves such, we then are accountable. Every inch of the realm of God's created order was to be held accountable to the standards of the Holy Scripture, us and the society. The third foundation upon which the Puritans based their lives upon was the absolute sovereignty of God. And to declare that God was the sovereign Lord over all things, lawgiver, judge, and king, incorporated into everything. It was incorporated into everything within the created order. And therefore, as the sovereign king, we were subservient to Christ's lordship. Not only was Christ lord of the individual, family, and church, he was lord over everything, over the state as well. And in a word, he was lord over all. And this had a dramatic, this idea of God's sovereignty had a dramatic effect, an impact, an overriding impact upon the political and governmental views of the people. So God was also the sovereign over the magistrate. Greg Singer comments this way. It was the sovereign God who created the state and gave to it its powers and functions. The earthly magistrate held his position and exercised his power by a divine decree. He was a minister of God under common grace for the execution of the laws of God among the people at large for the maintenance of law and order and for so ruling the state that it would provide an atmosphere favorable. Notice, the state would then be called to provide an atmosphere favorable to the preaching of the gospel. 
He was to so rule that the people of God, the elect, could live individually and collectively in a life that was truly Christian. In Puritan political theory, the magistrate derived his powers from God and not from the people. His powers did not come from the people, nor was he primarily responsible to them for the stewardship of his office. Think about that. We the people, or the powers of the state come from the people. No, it doesn't come from from God. He continues, it must never be forgotten that both the voters and the magistrate were to look to the scriptures as a guide for the general conduct of their government. The rulers and the people were thus subject to the revealed will of God and the will of the people could never take precedence over the divinely ordained powers and functions of human government. End quote. Very different than what we have today. The next foundation in Puritan theology, as it was with the reformers, was the total depravity of man. The Reverend Steve Wilkins explains it this way. He says, The doctrine of man's total depravity influenced not only their preaching and understanding of the nature of salvation, but also their views of the necessary structure of society. Man's depravity made civil government necessary where it would be strictly limited in its authority. Notice, strictly limited in its authority. Education also was necessary and all laws must take into account the reality of man's nature. The basic problem with our modern laws and policies is that they are based upon a faulty view of man. What is needed is the preeminence of the law of God, end quote. And so for the Puritans, a pure democracy was despised and condemned. For the Puritans, only a theocracy, God's law. And you know, when people talk about theocracy, they say, well, we don't want a theocracy. We already have a theocracy. It's just not the God of the Bible who's ruling. What they're looking at And thinking is we don't want an ecclesiocracy where the church rules. And that's true. But we definitely want a theocracy. And for the Puritans, only a theocracy where the law of God was the law of the land could be agreed upon as the only proper form of government in the new world. If Christ was indeed the God of creation, then he had to be submitted to. If he was the lawgiver, judge, and king, his laws had to construct the entire civil order. Singer again explains, he says, the church and state were to cooperate in the attainment of their respective goals. Notice, they were to cooperate. They were both subject to the same God. It was for this reason that the state was to punish blasphemers and heretics. The magistrate, in the discharge of his office, was a steward unto God, and he was to be found faithful in his responsibility. It was not the role of the magistrate to proclaim the gospel, but it was his duty to establish such civil conditions as to enable the church to perform its function. Neither was it the responsibility of the church to manage the civil life of the people, but a faithful preaching of the law of God was bound to have a healthy influence on the community at large. John Cotton wrote that theocracy was the best form of government and defined a theocracy as, quote, having the Lord God as our governor and where the laws by which men rule are to be the laws of God, end quote. So in 1641, John Cotton, showing a deep concern to uphold God's law, wrote a treatise called An Abstract of the Laws of New England as they are presently prescribed. In the 1655 reprint of Cotton's work, in the foreword of the work, William Aspinwell observed this. He said of the work, This abstract may serve for this use principally to show the complete sufficiency of the word of God alone to direct his people in judgment of all causes, both civil and criminal. Both civil and criminal. 
So the first question that must be raised is, if the structure of Puritanism was so in line with Scripture by men whose character was of the highest godly character, holy and dedicated to Christ like no one else, evangelism and the reclamation of the human race, then why does it receive such negativity, especially among those of our modern era? Think about it. When you hear the word Puritan, the word Puritan comes from a negative connotation. They were Puritans. Oh, they were so holy that you couldn't even talk to them. No, these men were of the highest ethical and moral caliber. And furthermore, their learning was beyond compare, not only in the scriptures, but in everything. Daniel Howey, in his book, The Puritan Republic, observes this. He explains, The industry of the ministers was as marvelous as was their learning. The Reverend John Cotton, it is said, spent 12 hours each day in reading. And it was his habit to close the day with reading something from John Calvin. Because, he said, I love to sweeten my mouth with a piece of Calvin before I go to sleep. Increase Mather was accustomed to study 16 hours a day. Some of the other ministers must have been quite as industrious. They were men of fearless disposition and a will which was impossible to defeat. End quote. We think that we read one scripture verse and we're done for the day. Or maybe even for the week. Men like Richard Sibbs and a lot of these men, a lot of these men's names you probably won't know and don't know. Maybe you know a few. You need to know them all. Men like Richard Sibbs, William Perkins, Richard Rogers, Richard Baxter, Jeremiah Burroughs, Thomas Manton, John Owen, Thomas Goodwin, Thomas Brooks, George Gillespie, Samuel Rutherford, Thomas Shepard, Thomas Boston, John Flavel, William Guthrie, John Bunyan, Thomas Hooker, William Hubbard, John Winthrop, Cotton Mather, and even William Bradford, all were Puritans having the same traits, habits, and convictions as Cotton, Cotton Mather and the Puritans. These were men of great learning. And by these and many others, we have the genius of Puritanism. They're still with us today. So, next question. Why is the work of Puritanism so ignored, the work of the Puritans so ignored, and theonomy and theocracy so despised? Why are these things so despised? Well, to ask this another way, let's ask this. What caused Puritan theocratic Commonwealth ideas, the Puritan theocratic commonwealth, its ideas, to lose its impact on just one generation, the generation of Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and others. Well, during the Puritan era, the majority of the people were unopposed to a system of government and law which was based upon theocratic and theonomic principles. However, there was a faction which so opposed the Puritans, their doctrine of theocracy and theonomy, that they resorted to violence. And as the Puritan Republic matured, its progress was marked by great dissension and violent opposition, even to the point of bloodshed. They didn't want God's law. They wanted to destroy God's law. They wanted to destroy the church. So they resorted to violence. Most of those that opposed the Puritan legal structure were those who also opposed the Reformed faith. While others in opposition were those that were not members of any church who wanted the same benefit as those who were faithful churchmen. Now remember, at this time, voting rights were only given to those who were members of an Orthodox church in good standing. They had to be under ministerial oversight so that you wouldn't have a congregate member vote for a profligate sinner or a man that was going to bring socialism or anarchy or chaos into the realm. 
Because if they did vote for such a man or encourage such a man or supported such a man, they would be excommunicated. And if you're excommunicated, you lose your property rights. You lose not only your voting rights, your property rights. You lose your business enterprise. You lose everything when you're not part of a church in those days. So the church wielded a lot of power. And they wanted to have ministerial oversight over the congregation so that they would only express Christian character and integrity in the choosing of magistrates. And so the privileges of free men were limited to church members. But there were others of a more libertarian or libertine, almost anarchistic character that sought to undermine the Puritan theocracy. And these believed that no ministerial authority should be exercised so that every man could do whatsoever was right in his own eyes and according to his own conscience. We have those people today. They are a law unto themselves and they don't need any ministerial oversight. Daniel Howey again explains, he says, the first to oppose the pretensions of the theocracy was Roger Williams, the new minister at Salem. He too, like many other ministers, had been driven from England to escape the persecutions of Bishop Laud. John Quincy Adams described him as the very impersonation of a contentious spirit with an uncontrollable appetite for disruptions. He came to New England in 1631, but it was not long until he began to advocate opinions which raised a great ferment and aroused violent opposition and which at the general court in 1635 was judged by all ministers and magistrates to be erroneous and very dangerous. He was a big troublemaker. Now, according to Reverend Wilkins, he said, to modern Americans, Roger Williams is one shining light in the midst of that whole story of darkness which was the Puritan era in this country. According to the accepted story, the Puritans were extremely intolerant folk, paranoid of anyone who didn't believe precisely as they, and utterly unwilling to consider different ways. Because of this, as is the common notion, they cast out Roger Williams, who, as they saw it, the reprobates, was a gracious, sweet-spirited man who only desired religious liberty. It's funny, my mother used to tell me about Roger Williams. Oh, but he all he wanted was to do what he wanted to do. All he wanted was to do what was right. Everything that he wanted to do was wrong. That was the problem with Williams. He continues, but he was banished from Massachusetts Bay because he was a Baptist and forced to flee from his persecutors by making a heroic escape into a harsh New England winter. You see, that's untrue, but that's what we're reading about. So in your history books, In the schools, you're reading about this Roger Williams guy who is such a hero of libertarianism and freedom. It is all a lie. This description of Williams is far from accurate. Cotton Mathis said about Williams that he had a zeal but not according to knowledge and that he had followed the way of the apostate. According to the historical record, Roger Williams held to an extreme separatism which led him eventually to renounce every church in the world as apostate. In other words, no more good churches, sorry, but of course, I know what the truth is. And we had to deal with that in in New York, with our church in New York. We had those who said, there are no more churches any longer, so we'll just be a church unto ourselves. See, for Williams, only he had the truth. He believed that the New Testament of the sacred scriptures nullified the Old Testament, which was heretical, thus causing him to believe that the Puritans were in error by using the law of God to construct the societal order. What do we have today? We have the same thing today. Talk about somebody, about the law of God. They say, oh no, we can't construct this society according to the Old Testament because now we're a New Testament people. 
So they get rid of half the two-thirds of the Bible. So Williams repudiates the idea that the Old Testament is valid. Plus, he repudiated the idea that the state was accountable to the law of God. He believed that the state was purely secular in nature. What do we believe today? What do the churches believe today? The Puritans were right in expelling him. He also believed that the civil ruler did not need to be a Christian. Nor did the civil ruler need to even think according to the policies of Christianity. T.H. Breen again explains, he says, William's insistence on the secular nature of the state led him to conclude that a ruler could still be a good ruler even though he had never heard of Christ. There was no reason to assume that a person would perform better in his particular calling simply because he was a Christian. Williams declared that civil, civil places of trust and credit need not be monopolized into the hands of church members who sometimes are not fitted for them. So the Puritans viewed Williams's position in the language of John Quincy Adams as altogether revolutionary. Williams then founded, of course, Rhode Island to discredit the political ideas of the Puritans because he wanted a total freedom from conscience and all things scriptural. So what happened to Rhode Island? It became a haven for total anarchy. Wilkins describes it this way, Providence became a haven for every crackpot, rebel, misfit, and anarchist in the country. Anarchism abounded, and in March 1657, even Williams had to summon to court one Catherine Scott, the sister of Anne Hutchinson's, and three of her friends for their anarchistic leaps. So it got so bad that even Williams had to admit that it's out of hand. And so by opposing the sovereign will of God, and his law in the establishment of the right, of righteous of a righteous commonwealth, William succeeded in establishing a commonwealth based on the autonomy of man. And this is exactly what we have now in our dysfunctional government. According to Wilkins, he says this, Williams was in a very real sense the first to seek to put a biblical face on humanism. What happened in Rhode Island was now occurring throughout his, this country. The death we see covering our land is a direct consequence of the seed sown by Roger Williams and others who followed him. So how did this happen? How did we get to this place when, when we see Puritanism starting off with a big head of steam wonderfully? How did this all happen? What caused Puritanism and its influence to be ignored, even shunned, as the dawn of colonialism emerged? And if the American founders were, for all intents and purposes, the heirs of Puritanism, why didn't they craft the Constitution as a theocratic and theonomic document? What may be more incredible is that while insisting that the doctrine of liberty and justice be upheld for all men, they ignored the only document that could ensure liberty and justice for all men, the Holy Scriptures. And so while upholding the idea of liberty, the framers stripped it of its enduring Puritan and Theonomic foundation, the liberating law of God. Even while verbalizing the principle of where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, they constructed a constitutional charter which in effect denied the liberating foundation of Scripture while at the same time borrowing from Scripture. Now, of course, they borrowed from Scripture. They were nominal Christians, but they were Enlightenment thinkers. So my question is, what were they so afraid of? 
Why didn't they follow the pattern of the Puritan theocratic commonwealth? Permit me to suggest several possibilities. Overzealous ministers. In their zeal to control the affairs of society by the law of God, they exercised an extreme form of oversight. The Puritans were no pushovers. Now during the Puritan era, the ministers were extremely powerful in both the affairs of church and the civil realm as well. And while they may have been a bit too heavy-handed, and I believe they may have been, to their credit, they were only seeking to protect the citizenry from heresies which would, they believed, cause the people to depart from the Orthodox Reformed faith. Sometimes, compared to the Puritans, I believe that we're just too lenient. It took them more than 50 years to establish a functioning biblical commonwealth, and they were not about to let it slip from their grasp. As stated before, ministers decided who would vote and who would not, depending on their church affiliation, and that did not sit well with those who refused church membership. Howie again explains this further. He says, as we have seen, no one could be admitted as a free man and be entitled to vote and exercise the privilege of citizenship until they had been admitted a member of some Orthodox church. But that was not always an easy manner. The minister would, of course, have great influence in determining the application for membership. Indeed, while he could not admit anyone against the will of the congregation, neither could the congregation admit anyone over his objection, however arbitrary it might be. The second possibility for the failure of the Puritan commonwealth was what is known as the adoption of the halfway covenant. By 1650 and 1660, the baptized children of this first generation of Puritans had become adults themselves and were beginning to have their own children. The problem was that within this second generation, there was no way of ascertaining whether or not there was a real conversion experience. You know, it's, it's the same with some of your children. You're raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and they're generally Christianized, moral, but there's no real way to ascertain, are they really converted? So the churches had to agree to admit them into membership, whether or not they were Christians. They seemed to be good children, they seemed to be good, they seemed to be Christian, but there was no real concrete conversion experience that could be pointed to. Some historians identify the halfway covenant as a cause of Puritan declension and decline. Historian Perry Miller identified the halfway covenant as the final step in, quote, the transformation of congregationalism from a religious utopia to a legalized order, end quote, in which assurance of salvation became essentially a private matter and, quote, the churches were pledged, in effect, not to pry into the genuineness of any religious emotions, but to be altogether satisfied with an outward show of piety. In other words, if they looked good, I guess they were true Christians. They didn't want the ministers to start asking questions to the children, to see, are they really Christians? Mommy and Daddy, that is your job as well. Pry into their lives. Ask them the hard questions. See if they're truly passionate for the things of God. Lastly, the Puritan downfall was made complete by the acceptance of natural law theory and some reliance on the autonomy of, self, of self-rationalization, the reliance on human thought. According to Terrell Elniff, his work, The Guise of Every Graceless Heart, 
the Puritan dilemma, and this is what he calls it, the Puritan dilemma of, of looking at natural law and, and, and thinking rationally without looking to the scriptures entirely. The Puritan dilemma was made up of his reliance upon a blend of scripture, human reason, and natural law. And it was this contradiction of thought that was adopted into the mindset of colonial America and the creation of America's constitutional republic. And for these reasons, and I suspect many others, the American founding, at its beginning, was not to be structured as a theonomic, theocratic republic, but a constitutional republic under a secular structure. Now, having laid this foundation, we shall continue next time exploring the requirements that the Puritans had for a civil ruler according to the word of God as we move into our election season. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.